Doesn't sound like it. All right. <laughs> well, can only get better, I guess. Good. Thank you. Hey, and as much as um, as much as I appreciate Liesel's um, fine words and care, please, the pastor's corner thing is not for me. Um, <laughs> it's not like Rick. Uh, Rick needs a boost to his ego. Uh, no, it's it's. Listen. A lot of times. Uh, faith is hard. Questions come up, and a lot, and, and those questions we can uh, be fooled into thinking we're the only ones who have them, right? So uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to have a little time over here where I can be present, uh, you know, or Pastor Steve or both of us, or and and um, yeah, sit down and just have a conversation. Uh, maybe you'll find out the questions you have aren't, uh, and they don't have to do, with, they don't have to be about the sermon, but they can be if you have questions about that or just about faith in general, just, yeah, come and ask. It's not a big deal. And if you don't have questions, then don't go over there. <laughs> That's weird. My ego is not that frail. Frail, yes. That frail, no. Uh, it's okay. But thank you, Lisa, for your sweet care. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible out, you can turn in it to the book of Galatians. There are uh, Bibles under some of these seats if, if you need one and you'd like to have it in front of you. What we're about to do is something that for um, many of you, you're used to, right? Because you've been in this church for a long time. And you're used to the idea of a kind of preaching we call expository preaching. But others of you are not familiar with that because um, either you are new here, or maybe you're new to church, or maybe you're new to this kind of church, right? You're used to uh, robes and pews and, 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 um, and shorter sermons. That's what you're used to, if we're being honest. And so the idea of uh, like what preaching is primarily to you is you, there's a verse that's read or a passage that's read, and then someone gives a bunch of stories that are meant to warm your heart um, on some topic. Maybe you've been in uh, big, big churches where everything's about topics. Um, those can be great. There's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But one of the things that we practice here in our tradition is something we call expository preaching. And, and the ways in which you do that, or one of the primary ways, you can, you can still do that in a sense that's topical uh, through, a, through a text passage. But one of the ways, the primary ways, is we walk through an entire book of the Bible, whether that's uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament. And we just go, maybe you've heard it called verse-by-verse verse preaching. It's not, I mean, it can be that. Um, some verses, you know, you, you don't really need to talk about that much. Uh, so, but the, it's the kind of preaching that's moving through to, to uncover, to discover, in fact, what it is that God is trying to communicate in his word in a way that puts it back into the context in which it was first written so that um, we don't, uh, well, we can't completely avoid it, but so that it, it puts barriers on our penchant, and by our I mean our, like the guys who are up here, our penchant to only talk about what we want to talk about. I'll talk about our four or five things we really love a lot, and to not talk about the harder things that may come up in a Bible passage that we wish we could have skipped over, right? That does happen. It happens a good bit. So we're going to be doing this over the next several months through the book of Galatians, and, and I would encourage you, if you're kind of, if you're either well, if you're a regular tender here, whether you're a member or not, if you're a regular tender here, I want you to think about it in terms of um, this weird phrase of ordering our corporate life. I want us to order our corporate life around this book. In other words, 
Uh, maybe it's, it's time to read it a few times uh, in your personal devotions. Maybe it's um, something that when you get together to do Bible studies with others, it, maybe it's something you uh, plug into there. Maybe it's something you talk about in your um, groups, whether, that's, whether that is um, you know, governed by what we say in the sermon or not. Like this, it's a, it, we want to order our corporate life around this. And this is a letter, frankly, that is both fiery and pastoral at the same time. Um, At times, it's very tender. At other times, uh, it's not. Because Paul, the writer, and we'll talk a little bit more about him in a second, he's a little frustrated. But at the center of the message of this book is the concept of freedom. An announcement that our deepest needs and central hopes have been accomplished. They've been accomplished so that we might become who we always meant to be. So we're going to jump right in, right at the beginning. If you have your place, do you stand, please? We're going to read Galatians 1, 1 through 5. This is God's word to us. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we uh, open this time, as we enter into this season where we're going through this, I pray that you would use this book the way you've used it, in other places in the past, to clarify the gospel. Lord, use use this in our own hearts, in my heart, in the hearts of my friends here, to help us get rid of all of those things that we would add to Jesus. And we would never say it. We would never say we believe that. But in practice, help us get rid of all those things that we add to him so that we might give you the glory that you're deserving. To that end, Holy Spirit, would you come and you open us to your word today. Open us to this. That we might see Jesus, open our ears, that we might hear from him, and open our hearts to receive him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. I know you're not supposed to admit this in church, but there is a ton of confusion inside the church and outside the church in regards to Christianity, and most of that is due to Christians, right? Most of that is due to those of us who, um, who come to this place every week. I mean, for some, Christianity is primarily identified with some measure of cultural conservatism, right? You have Christianity, and that, and that means some kind of cultural conservatism. From the place that I came from, right, in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, kind of a, more of a rural area, it's, it's, you know, God flags and football, um, that's somehow identified with Christianity. For others, it's a political platform. For others, it's about being accepting of pretty much anything that makes other people happy. And for others, uh, it's about being accepting, right? It can range anywhere from a set of staunch rules to a variation of the theme of I'm okay, you're okay. And all of these different and even opposite opinions want to claim Jesus as their mascot, right? 
He can seemingly champion everything from hipster niceness to urban tolerance to straight-laced middle-class morality all at the same time. It's amazing. I don't know how he does that. All of this is basically to say that we as people have a creative penchant for making Christianity, and particularly Jesus, be all about the stuff that we find the most important. Right? Because, of course, Jesus wouldn't be against us, right? Right? I mean, he's way too nice for that. Maybe that is why... (laughs) why it's hard for you to believe any of this. Because you've been, you've been hanging out around people who call themselves Christians and, and you have one group who says one thing and one group who says another thing and another, and you're like, I, who am I supposed to trust? Who am I supposed to believe? And none of these people, they all seem to put Jesus into the box that looks a lot like them. Maybe for you it's... it's why in the middle of all this you still haven't known what to believe? See, the, cr- the crazy thing is that Christianity and Jesus especially refuses to play nice with all of these reductionisms. Does so both today and in the time in which it was, he was originally preached. And this is because the gospel is about true freedom. So let's, let's dig into this first by looking, we've got to talk a little bit about this book, we're going to talk about the man and the message real quick, and so first I want to talk about the man. So um, the, the dude who's writing this letter is a guy by the name of Paul. He's had a couple of names, I don't know entirely how normal that was in the ancient world, but um, he first went by the name of Saul and then later um, takes up the name that primarily is used at him, Paul, look down at verse 1, he says, Paul... An apostle not from men or through a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Or you can flip those back and forth. Okay, so let's talk about Paul. Paul is actually the least likely dude you'd ever consider to be writing this. The least likely person to ever be writing a letter to churches, Christian churches, Christian people, trying to help Christian people grow in their understanding and their relationship with Jesus. And that is because he hated Christians. I mean, hated Christians. Like to the extent that he, what he was in on and what he wanted to do early on in, in his, uh, when he came and encountered Christianity for the first time was to go find the people who believed this and drag them into jail or kill them. That's, that's hating, right? I mean, that's pretty bad. Then this surprising thing happens where he was on his way to find more Christians to go get and he met the resurrected Jesus. And he went from like menace to missionary. Just like like that. So Paul, this guy Paul, and if you want to learn more about him, you can look in the the, uh, book of Acts, which is just a a few books back from where we're at. Turn to the left and keep going until you hit the word Acts. But um, Paul describes himself as an apostle. Now, that is not a word we use often, especially in the Presbyterian tradition. We don't, we don't use that word, right? There are some other Christian traditions you've been in where they, they still use it. But, but we don't uh, use it much. But what it meant in the ancient world was an official representative sent on behalf of another. And now here's the thing. Paul is very clear that he is a representative not of men, which is to say churches, 
Not a group of people, nor one particular um, human being, and one particular person, but he was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, two things about this. First, why would, why would he say this in the first place? Well, it's going to become rather clear early on that this is kind of a shot across the bow, because Paul is, is coming into an into a area, into a church, and again, we'll get on this in the next few weeks, in which after he left, after he left this area that he had planted all these churches in, other people came in, and as they came in, they were drawing suspicion on his authority, his ability to speak authoritatively to these things that he was saying because he wasn't around when they first happened. And so Paul is saying, like, you know, hey, I was sent by Jesus and by the Father. Well, the other thing, this, this kind of gets at our basic suspicion of anyone who claims authority, right? I mean, we do that today. We have that basic assumption. We assume that if someone's claiming authority that they have an angle. So we think, who do you think you are? And Paul is saying, He's not a representative of some group trying to impose their will on you, nor is he a representative of some random teacher. He is of Jesus Christ. More than that, though, Paul is claiming to be an official representative of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, there are two kinds of apostles in the early church, right? Because like I said, apostle can mean sent by, it can mean sent by anybody. You could have an apostle sent by uh, the church in Thessalonica. And they were sent by someone to go do something else. And now you've got lots of these guys who go, and, and, and some women, who get sent out to go on a mission to go somewhere and do something on the, on, the, uh, on the behalf of this church. But Paul is saying that he is not that kind of an apostle. He is an apostle of Jesus, and that is a unique thing. The New Testament teaches that the apostles of Jesus, those sent, that we would call them like big A apostles, okay? Not little A, but big A, like it's a proper name. They were, they were sent and given the unique authority to teach in Jesus' name. In other words, they were to, when they spoke, it was as if Jesus was speaking. When they taught, it was to be understood as if Jesus was teaching. Paul is not some random guy, and he's not a self-appointed thought policeman. He is an authoritative representative of Jesus speaking in his name. Now, that brings up the second thing, because he does make this distinction. I've pointed it out, but let's do it again. On the one hand, you have, I'm not here as a representative of people, you know, man or men, right? The, the, the generic, uh, the masculine generic was used there for everybody. And then on the other hand, you have Jesus and God. Now, we have, we, again, we don't have a ton of time to go into this, but it still needs to be said. In our culture, we tend to understand Jesus as a cool guy. I don't know, there are not many people, no matter your religious persuasion here this morning, who are like, that Jesus, he was terrible. That guy was just awful. Like, nobody thinks that. They all think, no matter what you believe, you tend to think Jesus was great. Jesus' followers, not so much, but Jesus was pretty cool. He wore a robe, he, you know, probably in flip-flops, just hung out with people, taught some cool philosophy. In other words, we think he's a cool teacher. But Paul is writing about 10 to 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is saying something completely different than that. See, Christians believe that Jesus isn't just a man, he's God. That God exists as one God in three persons. I've said that a few times since coming here, right? One what, three who's. 
and that Jesus is one of these persons. And so don't miss this. Paul is writing within the physical memory of the people who were there when it happened, who believed that it happened, and those that didn't believe that it happened. And he is saying two controversial things. One, Jesus rose from the dead. And two, that he's just not some guy. He is the Lord. He's going to make this even clearer in a minute, but I want us to grapple with the fact that this is not 300 years after the fact. This is not several generations later when legends can begin to come up. This is within the lifetime of those that these people could go on. It would be a long trip, don't get me wrong, but they could go on a journey and go, hey, this Jesus guy, did he really rise from the dead? And some people go, no, there's the grave's right there. He's still in there. Or some people go, you know, I don't know what happened, but it was nuts. He was there, and then he wasn't there. I don't know. This is a claim that the early Christians are making almost immediately, historically, relatively, immediately after the fact. Okay? I know that's probably not what you were taught in your college Bible class, but it is what it is. Okay? Now, on to who Paul was writing to. He says it's to the church in Galatia. Now, two things we have to understand. First, what the word church means. Today, we think of the word church as a building, right? Church. It's a building. We go to church. We meet at church. We get married in a church. Actually, nobody does that anymore, do they? Wedding venues. We have wedding venues now. No more churches. Weird. Okay. But um, the word church isn't a facility. It's an identity, right? The word in in the original means an assembly, a gathering of people, specifically the assembly of God's people. In other words, again, it's an identity. It's who you are. It's not where you go. Does that make sense? The church is, a, is a, an identity, a public identity. It's not a place you go. We go to worship. We are the church. The church leaves this building, and the church comes into it, but the church is not this building, okay? There's so much that we struggle to understand here. So listen closely if you can, because Paul believed the Bible, and because he believed the Bible, he believed that there was one God who created all things. He created humanity to be in this dependent relationship with him, to be in his image, and to be in a dependent... Gosh, I say that so much. Let me help you understand what this means. Do you realize that God needs nothing? Just think about that for a minute. He needs nothing. Like, he doesn't need air. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need relationship. He already has all of that. All life comes from him. It's not something separate from him. It comes from him. And so everything that is created relies on him for that. You see what I'm saying? Everything else is dependent on him. But we don't like that very much, do we? We don't like dependence. We don't like dependence when it comes to um, what we believe to be true and not. No, no, I'll, I'll decide. We don't like it in our understanding of what reality is. This is why when you get married uh, for the, and you're hanging out with your spouse for the first time and it comes to a holiday and you're like, no, this is how holidays are done. And they're like, no, this is how holidays are done. And neither of you realize that you have that because not because this is an objective truth, but because that's how you do holidays. Figure it out, okay? 
We don't like the idea that we are dependent, contingent creatures. We don't like that because we began to believe a lie in the beginning that God, who was there to be someone that we depended on for everything, from life to breath to our understanding of what reality is, to what's true and good and beautiful, that we believe that he was actually, that the reality was we could be like him in being independent. And that the only reason we weren't is because he was holding us back. When we believed that lie, we betrayed him. We turned away from him so that we could define reality. We could give ourselves an identity. We could provide for ourselves. And how is that working out? You know what tends to happen, and I'm not going to get on too much of a soapbox, but you know what tends to happen when we decide for ourselves what's going to work for us? More often than not, and I don't mean like not listen to my parents anymore. I'm going to go do my, I'm talking like, you know what I think will be good for me? I'm going to go just run my life into a ditch because you know, that's just, I'm going to follow my heart. Do you know what most often happens when we just follow our heart? We wake up in a recovery room. That's what most often happens. When we look to God for all of these things, or when we look to God for all of these things, we were in a state of innocence, but then we turned from Him, and now we're not. And so when God uses the word church, when Paul uses the word church, he means the called out ones, those who are called into assembly, the gathered people of this one creator God, gathered for him and by him. Paul is writing to those who have formed their identity around that. That's who they are, that's what they want to be, that's who they're following. But they live in this area called Galatia. Now, we don't call it this anymore. We call it Turkey. Uh, but in Paul's day, it would have been the southern area of Turkey. Okay, they're kind of the southern region, a collection of cities, including Thessalonica, that is uh, all in that area. And, and if, if, you're, if you're really interested, uh, in Acts 13 and 14, you can read about that later, about how Paul and this other dude named Barnabas traveled throughout the region, preached Jesus, made converts, began these little communities they called churches throughout these cities. This letter that Paul is writing is meant to be passed along from city to city to city in this area as teaching on correcting a problem that he has seen. We're not going to get into that problem until next week, but there is a problem that has come up. He is an apostle seeking to correct these things that have come up with the, the and he's doing so with the authority that comes as being a spokesperson of Jesus. With me? Okay, this is all the background stuff. Now let's get into the message. Look down at verse 3. This is basically the greeting for the whole letter, but even that greeting, and I sometimes, again, in the Bible, there are things we gloss over because it's just Bible words. And most of us, maybe not most, many of you in this room have been reading the Bible. You've probably been in a church where the Bible's been taught, and you've, you've grown so accustomed to Bible words that you're no longer curious about them, Right? Look what he says. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of us hear that and go, that's Paul saying hi. (laughs) Right? He's just saying hi. Hey, what's up? Today you would have said, Paul and everyone with me to these churches, how you doing? Right? 
Look at the words he uses to do that. Maybe he is just saying hi. It is a greeting, but look at how he's saying it. Grace and peace. These are extremely loaded words in the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, listen up close. These two words are extremely loaded. Grace. Grace is like the fundamental aspect of Christianity. It means an undeserved favor. uh, and, And by favor, I don't mean like, hey, can you do me a favor? I mean a disposition of favor. Someone being favorable towards you. And that being undeserved. In other words, you didn't do anything to get that. The unmerited favor of God. God showing favor to those who don't deserve it. That's what this grace means. When he says grace to you, that's what he's talking. Peace. Peace is huge. Like in our culture, peace is a cessation of hostilities, right? We are no longer fighting. We have peace. The Bible's understanding of peace goes way more than that. Because you see, one of the things that the Bible says we were created for was not just relationship with God, but relationship with each other and relationship with creation. That there was, a, there was a direct line between our relationship with God and how all of the world, all the universe was meant to hang together. Everything working in place in unbroken relationship that the Bible calls shalom. Peace. Everything lining up exactly as it should. But when we broke relationship with God, things came undone. Now, not only do we have disrupted relationship with God, we have disrupted relationships with ourselves. How many of us got up and looked in the mirror today and went, huh, you look great, buddy? No, you did what all of us do. You looked in the mirror and you went, And then you started the shame cycle. You know, you haven't been going to the gym. Not getting enough sleep, got bags under your eyes. Gosh, you're getting older. What are they going to think? Oh, bad hair day. No hair day. Like it. <laughs> that's what we do. And listen, listen. We can make it humorous if we want, but some of us have a, a line, a, 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 a kind of a string of voice that goes through our day that is completely self-abusive, thinking that that shame is going to produce change. We have broken relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other. Put two people in a room long enough, they're going to fight. We have a broken relationship with creation. It no longer does what it's supposed to do for us. And we certainly don't do what we're supposed to do for it. Because things have gone out of joint. And so for Paul to say, grace to you and peace, he is expressing something incredibly restorative. Now, why have things come out of joint? Why do, we need great, why do we need an unmerited favor and why do we need this peace again? Well, we need it because of what I said. Like when we, when we turned away from God, when we sinned, to use that three-letter three word none of us really like too much, everything became disjointed. And it's because of the breaking of relationships. Not necessarily the breaking of rules, but of relationships. You know, it's not, betraying God is not a little thing. It's not like, um, it's not like not eating your vegetables. 
parents tell you to eat your vegetables. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Ah, I'm not eating my vegetables. Throw it all over the floor. It's not that. It's more like adultery. The Bible talks about it in terms of adultery. You ain't, that, that ain't a little thing. You're not fixing that with a dozen roses. And so because it is like that, we betray God and God and, and, and we are guilty before him. But not just guilty, we're also broken. We are stuck in our independence. And like I said last week, that makes sense, right? Because you can't fix independence by yourself. It's an oxymoron. So this is the great tension point of the Bible. We're made to crown creation and being a loving, dependent relationship with God, but we have now turned from him and we're, we're stuck in this point of betrayal. And so when Paul declares grace and peace, he's speaking to this. The Bible is clear that none of us, like none of us, have earned anything before God but his judgment. But here Paul declares we have grace. We've fractured relationship after relationship after relationship, but Paul has declared peace. Shalom. How is that even possible? He lays it out. Look down at the source. Look at verses 4 and 5. Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, this is super important. That word Lord that he uses there, okay, that Paul uses there, that is Christian speak for us, but not in Paul's day. That word was the same word that uh, the Greek speakers, which would have been all of them, when they read their Bible, which would, we would call the Old Testament, when they read that in Greek, that word Lord was what was translated for God. God's name was called Kyrios. It was the Lord. That's how they translated it. This is really important when Paul is saying that Jesus is God because of how he continues. Because Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this evil age. All right, check in if you checked out, okay? Because this is where we begin to uh, muck things up. If you're going to be made right between, if, if we're going to be made right, if things are going to be made right between us and God, okay, it will have to be because he does something about it. And he did. Right? This whole promise that he had that lays itself out in the Old Testament comes to fruition in Jesus. We think of Jesus as a guy who just came to teach us some stuff. Right? Kind of like Buddha. He just shows up on the scene, he teaches some good stuff, and he says, if you want to get right with God, here's the way you need to walk. No, 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 no. The Bible, and Jesus says it himself. You want your way to the Father? I'm the way, not I'll show you the way, I'm it. He says, I'm the door, not I'm the way to the door, not I'm a step to get to the door, I'm the door, I'm the way. And the reason for that is because we don't need teaching, we need a rescuer. So because we couldn't live the perfect life of dependence on God that we were made for, God came in Jesus to do it for us. Because we dare not bear the weight of our own betrayal of God. God in Jesus did it for us. That's what Paul means here. He gave himself for our sins. That, literal, that, that word literally, that we just say for, we just say for, for our sins. On behalf of is a better way of putting it. In substitute of. 
He substituted himself for us. We want Jesus as a teacher, but Jesus says, I'm a substitute. And that's what forgiveness is. Listen, again, if you've been in in some kind of college Bible class or or read the magazines around Christmas or Easter time, listen, because this is important. Jesus did not come because we had an angry father that he comes to appease. Right? This is, the, this is like, and, and listen, this is, I understand, the idea of the Trinity is hard. Okay? It's hard. But this is one of those things that gets missed and messed up all the time. Jesus didn't do this because there was an angry God that he had to pacify. Right here, Paul says that he gave himself for our sins. Why? According to the will of of God the Father. In other words, God the Father wasn't an angry God needing to be pacified. He was was a God certainly that had wrath for sin, but who wanted his people. And so in Jesus came, the Father sends the Son so that in Jesus, God can bring his people to himself. He is full of grace. God the Father had a plan. God the Son, that is Jesus, accomplished the plan. And God the Holy Spirit applies it to us. You see, that's faith. Faith is returning to dependence on God. Faith is not simply coming up with the right answers. It is placing your weight on something or someone. And that is what Jesus did, trusting that Jesus is the one who makes us right before God, not our morality, not our spirituality, not our religious observance, not our right ideas or our correct voting record. Jesus, grace and peace to come to you have to be received, and they are offered to you because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. But you have to place your faith in him. You have to return to dependence on him, okay? All right, now, let me bring this home a couple ways this morning. The first, I, wanna, I want us to reckon with rescue. Because that is, that is core to this passage. Jesus gave himself for our sins in order that for the purpose of rescuing us. Rescuing us. Now, do you believe that you need rescue? I don't, listen, I don't just mean back then. Do you believe that right now, you are deeply still in need of a rescuer. Because Jesus didn't come to give you a little reformation, to reform you a little bit, to give you a little bit of a step up. He's like, I'll get you there. Okay, here we go. He's coming to drowning people. Not those who are swimming okay, but just kind of need the rope to get back to the boat. Drowning people. And not just drowning back then. <laughs> I'm gonna, you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again. You and I need a rescuer today, right now, in this place. Jesus, the Jesus who came to be nice, to say nice things and give nice rules, only exists in your mind. 
Jesus came to rescue sinners like me and like you. And look, all of our brokenness looks different. I know it does. I know it does. Like some of us chase after that independence by looking at God and saying, I want nothing to do with you, right? We're saying like, maybe it's because you've been burned. Maybe it was because you couldn't measure up as you grew up in the church. Maybe it was because you just, you know what? Like you're just prone. You're, you are all sail and no rudder. You're just like, wherever I'm going, sail of my heart is open. <laughs> you're after it. Sorry, I didn't mean to. That, that wasn't a knock at the song, but like you're after it. We run after sex and money and power, all the while suspecting that none of it really satisfies us. Others of us, though, that's not us. Others of us chase our independence by looking at God and saying, I'm doing just fine, thank you. I don't really need you today. I needed you when I walked that aisle to just as I am. But now I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. I don't cuss anymore, you know. I, uh, you know, I'm pretty generous with my money. I go to church. I serve even. I'm doing okay. We're moral, we're successful, we're driven, we look clean, and we are just as messed up and lost as that other guy. Still others of us seek our independence for our safety because we think the world is rigged to harm. And if the world is rigged to harm, I have to make sure that I'm okay. And we do that through our money, our financial stability. We do that through, uh, through uh, obsessing about health. We do that through uh, controlling our world. We're put together, we are responsible, and we are broken. And you can't make yourself right before God, whether that rightness that you're looking for is a status, whether it is uh, satisfaction, or whether it is safety. And that is why Paul declares grace, because grace isn't earned. It can't be. It wasn't earned then, and it's certainly not earned now. And you didn't need more of it then than you need now. God gives us grace because we cannot contribute to this, ever. And this is why in verse 5, Paul says that all glory goes to God. And we need to reckon with this. This means, listen, this morning, if you got dressed up here, and you, you look nice, but this is not the way you looked last night, and you drag yourself out of bed, put some Visine in your eyes, and your life is a mess, look at me, you are not too far from God's grace. It is greater than your sin. You cannot out-sin the cross of Christ. It also means if you felt pretty secure because you thought God was looking for good instead of dependent, you are also not too far from God's grace. It is greater than yours and my supposed goodness. You cannot outperform Christ's life either. It also means this. Christian, is grace and peace what you delight in? Is this what you give God glory for? Truly. Or do you end up thinking, or even saying, that you are smart enough or good enough to get God's attention? Last thing. This is the reality of Galatians. This opening passage also introduces us to this tension and difficulty of navigating two ages and two mistakes. Let me... Um, 
Let me speak a little more teachy for a moment instead of preachy. Paul speaks of Jesus delivering us from this evil age. Let me be clear. He is not talking about the downward grade of the culture today. Okay? I know that we hear that and we're like, I know the culture's out of control. Okay. Everyone has said that for every generation. We go, well, it's really true now. I know, I know. That's not what he means. If Paul is Jewish and in the Jewish way of looking at the world, because they read their Bibles, they had everything divided up into two epochs. By epochs, I don't mean like Ben-Hur. I mean epochs, right? E-P-O-C-H. An epoch, one that they called this evil age, and the one after it called the age to come. And what came in the middle was God showing up to judge sin, to vindicate his people, and to, and to get rid of sin completely and to resurrect the dead. Okay? With me? Now, what Christians came to understand is that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, something really weird happened. And it's that the age to come suddenly got up and scooted itself over top of this evil age. So that now, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you now live in between two of these ages. This is why Paul can call the Corinthians, whose church was more messed up than any I've ever seen, saints. How can you be a saint and a sinner at the same time? Because the two ages are over top of each other now. Because there's two things true of you at the same time. Do you know Paul says that you are seated right now in the heavenlies with Jesus? I'm pretty sure the heavenlies have better carpet. (laughs) Right? But Paul says, do you realize Paul says that before God you are justified. You have been made right. You have been declared in the right. Anyone stand before God's throne of judgment? I haven't. He calls you a saint. In other words, sanctified. Anyone thinking like, I got this Christian life. Done. I'm good. Like, that is what is going on. These two ages have overlapped. The expectation is that all of this would happen at once, but with Jesus' death and resurrection, they came to overlap. Okay? Paul is saying that we have been delivered from the evil age, but we aren't fully delivered yet, okay? There's the teachy part. Let me move back to being a little preachy. Because this idea pushes against two things. First, it pushes against our triumphalism. And what I mean is this. It pushes against the idea that the trajectory of our lives is now this upward stance of victory. All victory, no suffering. All victory, no backstepping. All victory, like it is, I am now a Christian and I am going to be delivered from all of this. And to that, we would say Christian until Jesus returns. It does no good, listen to me, it does no good to pretend that sin was something you dealt with in the past. It does no good to pretend that. You have not been fully delivered from this evil age yet. You still walk around with that thing that the Bible calls in various languages, the flesh, the old man, the old nature, whatever you want to call it, and it wars against the Spirit. It wars. It's not like having a nice little poker game. You lose a hand here. You lose. No, no, there's fighting going on. And if you don't experience that, it is probably because, Stephen alluded to this, 
you have not resisted sin hard enough. That's the reality. If you're not like, man, temptation is hard, it's probably because you gave in too soon. We are at war. It is objectively true that you still deal with sin. You must, because you are not fully redeemed. I'm pretty sure your glorified body is going to look better than that one. No offense. Pretty sure it'll look better than this one, too. I'm just saying. And this, of all places, is a place where you do not have to pretend, because if you're here, it is because you know this. And let me give you a little secret. So does the person next to you. You don't have to pretend with them. If you didn't struggle with it, you wouldn't have to be here. But it also pushes against our pessimism. If you have become convinced that that thing, whatever it is that you wrestle with day to day, you wrestle with it, that you've convinced yourself this thing in your life will never go away. It's just who I am. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's your anger problem. Maybe it's your inability to love people. Maybe it's desires and thoughts that are unbidden that you don't want and are just jump into your head and you don't know what to do with them. Listen to me. If you think those can never go away, you are wrong. You have been delivered from this evil age. Does that mean you will find perfect wholeness this side of Jesus' return? No. No, it does not. But it does mean that healing can come. Change can happen. There is no one too lost, too broken for Jesus to mend by his spirit. Jesus rose from the dead. I'm pretty sure he can handle the fact that you drink too much. I'm pretty sure he can handle the fact that you struggle to love people. I'm pretty sure he can handle the fact that you can't stop looking at porn. Are you kidding me? He, raised, he rose from the dead. Is it easy? No. Will you need help? Most certainly. But Jesus died and was raised not just to rescue your afterlife, but to bring rescue here and now. The freedom we were made for is freely offered to us. It is grace and peace, and it comes only through Jesus and is open to any who would turn from their independence and rest in him. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, bless this journey through this book. May not every sermon be this long, and your grace uh, be upon us that we would um, seek you and delight in the dependence that is ours as we return to Christ. We ask us all this in his name. Amen.